0: I bet you have some sort of crazy plan for the new year. Some big idea. And Squarespace is going to make it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. With Squarespace, you can showcase your work, blog, publish content, sell products and services, all of that in just a few clicks. And you can customize everything from the look and feel to the settings to the products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's just nothing to install, patch, upgrade, or anything ever. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SO SMART to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or a domain. All
1: down in the middle of the fight And at the cool
0: with a happy, they might try so damn so the dog to fall over but I'm they might try welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode 117 So I want to ask you a couple of really quick hits, and then we'll get into some more, um, uh, more in-depth stuff. And um, uh, I think this is really fun for, to ask an actual scientist why this is. Um, why do we get motion sickness? Well,
1: uh, a couple of theories around, but the most common theory, which uh, due to some accidental viral media story, people are attributing to me as, as if I discovered it, which I did not when I discovered it.
0: This is neuroscientist Dean Burnett, who's written a new book, on, Idiot Brain.
1: It does appear to be um let's well I call
0: it a color glitch but it's not even that really
1: it's a it's a deliberate thing, but it's not, uh, it's not it's not used appropriately. So when we are in motion by under our own steam under our own power, we are walking and traveling along by our own ambulation. there's a very specific set of sensory uh, in, you know, sensory feeds coming into the brain at the most fundamental level, like areas like the thalamus, which are, where all the, the basic information, the raw data is processed into something usable.
0: As a neuroscientist, Dean knows that the brain is quite fallible. It's the seat of consciousness and the engine of all human experience, he writes in his book. But it also has some very haphazard properties, and there are some things it doesn't do so well. For instance, we get motion sickness. And as Dean explains, it's because our brain is very, 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 very good at understanding where our bodies are in space. It's constantly receiving inputs from the body about where the body is, the pressure against it its contact with surfaces, acceleration, balance, and so on. And that's all fine tuned for walking and running and moving around, but just under the power of our bodies alone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 that's actually really quite consistent, really quite you know, sort of all, all neat and tidy. The brain's going, great, we are walking. That's marvelous. But in the most fundamental areas of the brain, the more primitive parts, which do all this, they haven't really had time in an evolutionary sense to get used to artificial movement, transport, vehicles. And these provide a different set of the sensations. So when you're sat in a car or a ship or a plane or whatever it is, you are sort of motionless in a, you know, very, in a more uh, physical sense. Your body isn't moving and you don't know don't any signals about that. And you're also within a contained environment, especially on a ship or something like that, where your eyes have, can't see any signs of movement. So all these senses are telling the brain that we are still, we are not moving. But the balance senses in your ears, which respond to physics, they are saying we're moving quite a lot. So we're sloshing up and down, especially in a vehicle, we're a lot faster and the movement's a lot more pronounced. So the brain's getting two different senses. It's uh, got 2 two it's got mixed messages, and it's saying well, half of them saying like, we're still, half of them say we're moving. That's not right. And the most fundamental areas of the brain don't really grasp why that could be happening. The only thing they can think of is we're perceiving nothing, but we are moving, so we must be hallucinating. The only thing that can cause that is a neurotoxin. So you have being poisoned, just throw up on the off chance that it's actually the case. So think of it like back to the computer analogy. Think of vomiting as the brain's reboot. Just like I don't know what's going on. Just turn it off and on again. Hopefully, they'll fix it and you know, and then we'll get back to normal. We, we've, we've all been there. Yes,
0: exactly.
1: There are plenty of ways to trigger that reflex.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure where I should be. Uh, blah. Um, the... Uh, the i, I, I want there's so many things that to, to that are great about that and um one is that is is this, the illusion that you're that you have control of all these things and sometimes you're just simple and well most of the time you're you're just having to deal with the brain that you have and what it's going to do in that situation and another one is just this these survival mechanisms or these adaptations that are obviously useful because they're part of uh, you know our catalog of, of responses to the natural world but our modern world has changed and advanced so quickly um, that you know I just think about how this is a physical reaction and there are also other there, there must be many other things that we do behaviorally or cognitively that involve just thinking about the world that are also throwbacks to a previous time and of course you know that gets into a so much speculation but the the fact that we have motion sickness sort of uh for me is evidence that um aside from however we the just so stories we might come up with there has to be there has to be truth to the fact that we are um we're not completely <laughs> set up to navigate the modern world by default no no exactly and we have actually we haven't really had time yet in
1: terms of you know the more fundamental aspects of the brain haven't had a chance to evolve uh, that sort of deeply ingrained ability to understand things like that, but mm-hmm. it's almost like a victim of its own success in that we have developed this formidable intelligence, despite what you know some people might think. we are incredibly smart creatures, especially on, on the scale of you know, on on the the sense of nature and the wider world, and we have been able to sort of modify the environment and to remove all the dangers and remove all the hazards. And you know we've actually been able to invent technologies and different processes and remove any sort of dangers and uh, treat, treat illnesses and stuff. So, and but we've made our own environment more complex than our own brains are technically able to handle in many ways. So, again, it's it's sort of shot itself in the foot or the frontal lobe it depends. What, you know, I don't know which bit of the brain, which would the other bit, but it is sort of self sabotage essentially, but not intentionally. So, so yeah, we are in a. Weird situation where our own brains have become sort of the, the architects of their own confusion.
0: On this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore our idiot brain with neuroscientist, professor, guardian blogger Dean Burnett. We discuss irrational fears, the imposter syndrome, whether brain training actually works. And why breakups hurt physically. All that after this break. I don't know what I don't know, and that's why I have The Great Courses Plus. I am always ready to push the boundaries of what I do know, learn as much as possible, and that's why The Great Courses Plus is in my life. There is always something new to discover. I love being able to watch or listen to these fascinating lectures whenever I want about anything that interests me – science, math, history, chess, photography – Whatever, I recommend checking out Science Wars, what scientists know and how they know it. This is a great course for someone who is really into science, sort of in the tribe of people who like science, but you don't quite know how science works. You just know you trust it. This is a course to introduce people to the way that science, well, the way it works. It's the process of science. It's messy. It's weird. It took us a long time to figure out how to figure out stuff. And we were wrong mostly every step of the way until some big pieces came together. This course will show you all of that. Now, I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. So they're giving my listeners a free month of unlimited access to enjoy as many lectures as you can stuff into a month. Free. And all you have to do is sign up through my special URL. So here's how you do that. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Get started today. It's easy. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so that you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging, and they all come pre-measured in handy Labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef curated recipes that change weekly, including the Classic Plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the Family Plan, which is quick and easy meals that the whole family will love, and the Veggie Plan, vegetarian recipes with plant based proteins. Better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule and even pause your account. For weeks at a time. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious, balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. There's no more time consuming planning or grocery shopping. You can enjoy not spending money on takeout for an easy night or worrying about gathering ingredients week after week. I just made Presto Pesto Panko Chicken with green salad and roasted potatoes. It's so good. Yukon potatoes, panko, mozzarella, chicken, nut free pesto, lemon, spring mix almonds, olive oil. It is so good, so easy to make. It's one of those plates that just looks nice, and I made it all myself without having to think about it, really. I just got the instructions, used all the ingredients that were packaged just exactly the way I needed them, and afterward, there really wasn't anything left but food for me to eat. For $30 off of your first week of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com and enter the offer code yanss S -S three zero. That's HelloFresh.com and the code is YANSS30. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? Well, why wait for the new year to set up your plans? Why wait for the new year to put those plans in action? Because the future is coming and you can make it brighter. With Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. Showcase your work, blog, publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, all in just a few clicks. And you can customize everything from the look and feel to the settings and the products. And it's all optimized for mobile right out of the box, except they're There is no box because it's a website. That website's called Squarespace and you can go there and get analytics that will help you grow in real time and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. But if you do have a question, if you have some crazy plan, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. Now, a dream is just an idea that doesn't have a great website yet. So make it a reality with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. That's Squarespace.com. The offer code is SOSMART. Get 10% off of a website or a domain at Squarespace.com. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and our guest is... I'm Dean
1: Bennett. I'm a doctor of neuroscience, uh, psychiatry and psychology lecturer for Cardiff University. Also, a science writer for the Guardian, and have my new book out, Idiot Brain: What Your Head Is Really Up To.
0: And I'm really happy to get a chance to talk to you. That was really fun. Uh, I, it was strange. I blurbed your book. I read most of your book uh, after a tornado scare. We, uh, my wife and I, had to had to leave our house, and we, we went and got a hotel room. Uh, north of where we live, and then I had the book with me, and then I read it in there, and then blurbed it right there from the hotel room. It was great. That's yes, Well, I, I, when I wrote it, I thought this will
1: be really suitable for anyone escaping a tornado. That was my, my target audience, so that is probably the best the best way to read it.
0: <laughs> All right, so, uh, I want to just start out with saying, uh, you know, I think I guess every age likes to use some sort of metaphor for the brain, and, and our age, and for a very long time, I, I guess it used to be this the high, the uh, Used to be all about steam power and hydraulics and building up uh, um, frustrations and anger, and now it's all about uh, programming and computers and modules. Um, but you assert pretty early on in the book that um, you, the brain—if the brain is a computer—it's not a really great one. Why is, why is calling the brain a computer sort of a bad analogy, by your account? Well, I'll say
1: first off that I understand where it comes from because the brain is like the most complicated thing and it does all these different functions and roles and processes which are extremely hard to get your head around. And in the sort of the everyday world, a computer would be the sort of the closest thing you can think of which does similar things like all this processing and information management and all that. So I get where it comes from. But again, as you say, it's quite a kind of a misleading metaphor in that computers are designed and sort of constructed to fulfill certain roles and the brain for want of a better term isn't despite what some you know fundamentalists might say that it's an evolved organism it it doesn't do things as efficiently as a computer would or as fast as it would because it hasn't been designed it's more like natural selection it's ended up the way it is due to trial and error over time Uh, but that doesn't mean it's you know does the most efficient thing the most logical thing And to expect it to be like a computer, as regimented, as ordered as that, is perhaps asking too much of it. And also it sort of draws perhaps false comparisons in that the idea that memory, for example, is just a big data bank full of information that we can access at will isn't how human memory works. It's far more fluid, far more flexible, far more organic, and far more malleable. It's um, not, not as reliable as that. And I think I say in the book I compare it to Imagine a computer which just rearranged your files for you and uh, just put the best ones on top and then suddenly presented you with files that you didn't ever want to think about again for no reason other than it just decided that's a good idea. That would be a bad computer and that's sort of what the brain does all the time but uh, you know, by orders of magnitude more frustrating. So yeah, there are many ways in which it isn't like a computer which sort of the using the analogy will perhaps be distracting or even upsetting to some people to think like, oh, it shouldn't do that but it does because it's not a computer and there probably are other reasons too.
0: I, I can't be – I think a lot of people are noticing this lately. Uh, you know, if you've read Steven Pinker's book about um, the better angels of our nature and or um, there are lots of places you can find that on many scales, the world has become safer. There's less war. There's less crime. Uh, there's less murder. There's less uh, – there's more prosperity. There There are all these measures of the world that show that things are – are a lot better now than they were just 20 years ago yet yet there is a strong feeling i know this is this is especially true in, in my country um that you know the world's going to hell and that every we're all doomed we're circling the drain um there's a lot of fear like i you write about the fear in the book a good bit and um i think there's this strange thing where we think the world is more dangerous than it ever has, has been, when it's actually safer than it's ever has been. What, what do you think is? Uh, what are your sort of your thoughts on the sort of climate of fear and the climate of fearfulness, and what's fueling all that?
1: I think there's uh, several different uh, sort of causes or at least uh, influences on this general idea that the world's a more dangerous and scary place, despite the evidence. In that, I you mean, know, at the most fundamental level, the brain isn't really adapted or evolved to Taking raw data like that sense, so you can show anyone sort of any number of graphs or scales or you know printed out dissertations and theses and studies, which show that the world is overall a safer, better place to be in, and a lot more prosperity and a lot more um, harmonious, even because there you are know, a lot less walls these days. But that's just you know, a very abstract uh, bit of information. Whereas someone who has been sort of mugged or has seen on the news someone you know, being horribly and kind to someone else. And that's a far more visceral, a far more emotive. Uh, sort of bit of information. The brain's far more keyed to uh, look, sort of pay attention to and remember the more emotional, evocative things like that. Because that's sort of how we live our lives. It's a sort of series of moments rather than abstract data. Which is sort of why revising for an exam can be so tricky. And when it's about supposed to remember something next nice from your life is a lot easier. Uh, so we are sort of key to to recognize more fundamental things like you know crime and horrible atrocities happening than we are to just uh, recognize abstract information and I think the way we that's sort of fed into how the media works too not not just the media but uh, any sort of uh, information or news platform because you know when you say crime isn't happening crime isn't happening isn't really a story a crime happening is interesting and gets people's attention whereas 50,000 people weren't shot today is less of a you know it's less of a newsworthy thing even though it shouldn't be and so like the media itself is always going to look for stories and scoops and um, and sort of unpleasant things happening and we do have a sort of tendency to focus on and retain negative things from the outside world because even at at a chemical level like when we experience fear or upset or anything unpleasant there's a sort of low-level cortisol release the stress hormone and that sort of you know gives us the the negative feelings and the negative responses we have to things like that but that endures in the bloodstream a lot longer than the more pleasant things like oxytocin or you know endorphins and stuff these uh, this stress hormone lingers and i think the brain is sort of key to look for threats and anything unpleasant would you know at a very fundamental level triggers off the perhaps threat recognition and it just also comes down to the fact that we have a lot more access to information now so we are for the first time perhaps ever in our society um able to see, or on the world, you, know, you give them a moment's notice, all the horrible things that are going on, especially things like social networks, Twitter and Facebook and all that, someone who's you know, just had a horrible thing happen to them can then go directly online and say, this horrible thing just happened to me, and that I can be shared by 20,000 people, then 50,000, then 100,000, then it's gone worldwide. And you would never have known before. I mean, that, you know, that sort of occurrence could be less common now, but it's far more common to just know, know that it's happened. And as a result, it just seems like more things like this are happening not to say that things you know, don't need to be improved and there are plenty of problems that don't need resolving, but we're a lot more aware of them now just because we can be. And as a result, it's going to scare people. And no, change itself is also quite scary for a lot of people. And uh, when we're a far more interconnected society, people who are different to you are more, you know, far more common, far more visible. And that, for some people, can be quite uncomfortable. Even though it, you know, that's not really an excuse, but it is a, it is a thing.
0: <laughs> that's... Um this, that is interesting. the 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 Our access to the information has increased, whether but the actual fearful information may have gone uh, in the other direction. And mm-hmm. so, it's another case of trying to adapt to um, a modern world that is uh, just different. Different from you know, there's a lag period, a biological lag. Mm-hmm. This is what you're just talking about there. That were there's something you just talk about in the book, and I think this is something that we've all wondered, or at least I, I know I've, I I asked. I wonder this constantly because if you were, if you live a semi-public life or if you spend any time on social media, um, you know that uh, criticism is more powerful than praise, and one negative comment can s- just rattle around in your head for weeks and, like, and is more powerful than a hundred uh, pats on the back. What does the science have to say about why that is? There are well, quite a
1: few possible explanations for that as well, in that... A lot of it comes down to the fact that we are, surprisingly, compared to what you see in the news, of course, we are a very sociable and very friendly species. And as a result of this, we tend to sort of... It could be due to the fact that we've evolved this way. That's the social brain hypothesis in that we have big brains because we evolved in tight-knit communities whereby we sort of counted other people in our community who we weren't related to. So the, the ability to have friends to retain like your relationship with this person in your head and that requires a lot more information processing ability and as a result we sort of inevitably drive to develop big brains which can hold all these different relationships in our head at any one time but when you evolve in a sort of tight-knit community where your survival depends on being part of the community being rejected by you know, your, your peers your friends your community your, your tribe folk that's almost like a death sentence. You know, when you're struggling to survive in the savannah, like a tight little community, and you get, ex- you, know, you get excommunicated or get kicked out, then you're on your own, and that's not a good place for a primitive primate to be. So sort of general fear and you know, sort of dislike of being rejected by people is seemingly underlying in most humans. And as a result, when someone does criticize us, it can trigger off as a potential threat response, which is a lot more potent than just the general sort of praise. Because we, you know, as well as that, we also, generally, we live in a society where, you know, manners are sort of important and there's just general etiquette. So someone being nice to you, to your face, is the general, is the norm. So as a result, someone being unpleasant to you is more novel. And the more novel something is, the more salient it is, the more stimulating, the more striking it is. And as a result, we end up being quite, um, quite sensitive to any sort of negative stimulus from another person and though know, it's generally perceived as a threat it's very novel it's not something we like anyway and the brain does have a tendency to focus on negative things more than positive but that's um you know, that seems to be a just general combination of how we evolved so we've evolved to you know sticks and stones don't break your bones but they are unpleasant and that's uh, you, know, you know names are unpleasant i mean and um it's sort of like I say in the book, if, you know, if names will never hurt you, why is there a phrase to say that if they didn't hurt you? You wouldn't think of it to invent one. So obviously they do hurt.
0: It's just not as physically damaging as an actual beacon. That relates to another thing that I think was just so – as soon as I saw the heading in the book, I was like, oh, this is such a good – I'm so glad that somebody put this in a book. Uh, from a scientific point of view, um, we've all experienced this, and um, and – I'd like to hear uh, what you have to say about why is it then, and this is related to, to the ostracism that you're talking about. But why is it that a breakup, a relationship breakup, uh, why does that really, really just throw us for such a loop? Why does it hurt so much? Well, say
1: when uh, you are in a relationship, it's not just no. In fact, is I think I say in the book. But objectively, what's happened to you is someone you spent a lot of time with, you won't spend as much time with them now. And from a completely objective, rational viewpoint, that doesn't sound so bad. But from a subjective point of view, it's awful, absolutely awful. And there are many, many things that happen to you when you end up in a relationship with someone, particularly a long-term one. And, for example, like in the oxytocin action, like when you start being intimate with someone at any any level, really, you the oxytocin release, you're, you actually become sort of, your brain adapts to them. That's where you can go from... Uh, so just being just pure physical attraction to genuine affection, then comfortable, then sort of association. And the relationships go through phases as you adapt to someone. And the longer you spend with someone, the more, the more they are a part of your life, they're a the part of your normal everyday routine. And the brain does not like change generally because it likes things to be predictable, it likes things to be certain. Uh, uncertainty is something the brain doesn't like at all. And then, of course, you build a life with someone. So, like, even if you just move in together, or you have several close friends, groups of friends, you have plans, you have routines, you have, you know, shared memories. and then that's suddenly taken away from you. So, someone breaks up with you, or they've not been particularly uh, faithful, whatever the whatever the cause. This causes a serious, you know, massive backlash in, you know, internally. First off, it's because you know all of your certainties, all of your daily routines, they've now been kicked, you know, kicked from under you. So now you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how things are going to pan out. You don't know what's going to happen next. You are obviously, you know, am I ever going to find love again? That's a big concern for many people. And that, that's really upsetting because obviously it throws, you to, it throws a lot of uncertainty at you, which the brain doesn't like. And then you also have all these nice memories of your relationship and all the things that happened. Now, all these are sort of tinged with a negative thing too. So, it cuts really sort of deep to the core of your being in that all of these pleasant memories now have a negative spin on them and a sort of negative association, which, you know, your memories are a big part of your identity, so you end up associating your identity with this person and then you, know, you lose that as well. That's that's a real shock to the brain. Uh, you know, our, so the way our cognitive th- things work, all, all our sort of preset maps of the world and our ideas how things work, or our schemas, all our thought processes, they are... assuming this person is going to be there and now they're not and that's a big blow to the brain like it takes a lot of time to get over that and to sort of rebuild and reassemble and when something that sort of emotionally visceral hits you uh, it does tend to trigger off the same sort of pain responses and sort of noxious stimuli that would a genuine physical pain would cause so it sort of triggers the same areas and some studies show that painkillers actually do make you feel better after a breakup rather than just after a serious injury, because you know, it can, it is, it is still an injury, just more of a psychological one than a, a physical one. So you know, people, if you want to a mope on your couch for several days, you know, eating chips and staring at the screen, I think I think you're
0: entitled to that. It's almost like intensive care, but not quite. A, but quite not so many beeps. So uh, I want to move away from that stuff. Into there's there's there are two things you talk about in the book that I really uh, that you know are really in my wheelhouse. Things that I'm really fascinated with, uh, and that we've sort of talked about a lot on the show in the last few. Um, Ten or fifteen episodes, and uh, uh, and one of those is arguing. And um, there, you you say something in the book that I had, I had never seen it this way, but I like the idea of it. And if you could just kind of walk the listeners through, sort of, you have this interesting thesis statement about when the situation that we find ourselves in quite a bit in modern life, especially on on social media, uh, is. You find yourself debating or arguing with someone who you know is wrong, and you know you're right, and uh, they think the same thing. And you sort of couch this as an imbalance between the imposter syndrome and the Dunning-Kruger effect. We've had uh, David Dunning on the show, and he's talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. So people people are going to understand what that is, kind of, but it's okay to— to sort of uh, refresh their memory. But I would like to hear you sort of walk us through this battle of cognitive um, malfunctions or cognitive weaknesses that ends up making us uh, really poor uh, debaters. Well, let's say it's a combination of um,
1: people who have lower intelligence not realizing that and people of higher intelligence realizing how much they don't know so the imposter syndrome, for those who don't know, is the weird phenomenon whereby people who are high achievers, particularly in academia or anything sort of high-flying like that or like high legal firms or the tech industry, they've worked their way up through you know, their own efforts and their own learning and their own sort of successes, but when they're at the sort of a certain high level, there's always a sort of a constant bias and like a negative bias against their own abilities. They think that everyone around them is competent and knows what they're doing, whereas they aren't certain and they're just bluffing it and eventually they're going to be found out so everyone feels like they're an imposter now normally in this case it's a lot of people around them are actually feeling the exact same thing just like it's a, it's a conspiracy of silence and no one dares mention it but it isn't it isn't the case because these people are fully qualified to be there and allowed to be there and they, they know what they're doing and they they get away with it because they're doing it correctly but there's always this sort of in, in in a nagging doubt because the more intelligent you are perhaps the more you learn that just sort of reveals more and more how much you don't know because it's kind of impossible for one human being to know everything, literally everything, especially about, about any single field. Like, there's no musician who knows all music, there's no scientist who knows all science, despite what the media what I always believe when they say scientists say, no, they don't. There's plenty of ones who don't <laughs> say that, trust me on this. And, uh, but no, so, like, it's a consequence of people who have high intelligence. It's not always the case, of course. I know I've met many professors who are convinced they are the center of the universe and will not take any disagreement with this, but <laughs> it's you know, it's quite common in sort of the high-achieving intellectual type of field. Whereas contrast that with some of low intelligence, um, I think the problem with it is that a lot of things require intelligence, and one of the things that requires intelligence is the ability to successfully assess your own intelligence, to be aware of how intelligent you are, and how intelligent other people are. So that requires a degree of intelligence. Now, if your own intelligence is lower than what's needed to be able to recognize how low it is, then you have no reason or no ability to recognize that you are unintelligent and have no reason to, to doubt yourself. So you can say things with the utmost confidence <laughs> and or believe things and thinking you're right because the idea that someone else might know more than you isn't something you can really appreciate at a tangible level. So you end up with people who are Supremely confident, and because they don't know why they shouldn't be, because they don't have the intelligence to recognise that they are not clever people, and they end up doing extremely confident, ridiculous things. Like run for president—that's one example. And <laughs> you know, just, just off the top of my head, yeah, I'm not I'm not naming names, but that is one possible occurrence of this. Uh, so yeah, so like it's a, and then we, when you have two people of the on the top end of the scale, one supremely confident for no, and not having any clue why they shouldn't be, and one very doubtful because they know all the different things they don't know. And obviously the confident person is going to be far more effective in an argument because it just comes down to one-on-one who gives up first. And the confident person has no reason to give up or see, you know, change their mind. So they don't. And just general, like over time, people just get worn down by the constant bludgeoning of uh, ridiculous
0: claims. Well, that's yeah, that's the internet in a nutshell. The constant, <laughs> b- constant bludgeoning over ridiculous things. Yes. Oh, next book title. <laughs> You also mentioned, and, and part of this is a, and you don't see this everywhere, but you definitely see this um, from time to time. A sort of anti-intellectualism can, in certain pockets of the world, um, that goes beyond just saying, you know, oh, look at this nerd. And it's more, it's worse than that. It's, uh, it's like, um, oh, what are these scientists going to say next? Or uh, uh, I remember very clearly Sarah Palin. Uh, Getting really, really upset that scientists were trying to study fruit flies, and she was like, "What are we? What are we trying to do? Like, like what do we need to know about fruit flies?" Um, and um, and there is this sort of undercurrent of anti-intellectualism, and I wonder, uh, you you mentioned it in the book. Like, what what is fueling that from your perspective?
1: Anti-intellectualism—it's—I
0: in, uh, think it might come down to the fact that,
1: uh, like I said earlier on. There's a lot more information around now, so people can have access to more information and feel like they are, perhaps, better informed than they would have done a while ago. And it you know, obviously comes out of the fact that not every, not all the information you can access is useful or any good or in any way accurate, but it is there, which is obviously some people don't have the training or the experience to differentiate between good and bad information. As you can see from anyone you know, if you have an older relative who's on Facebook who shares things on there which are like absolutely ludicrous, but you can't possibly argue because it'll make Thanksgiving awkward and you know, that's the sort of thing which you know people have a, you know, they can, if you have a if you have your own opinion now you can find out or you can find something which will agree with you which looks official but isn't but uh, so that's that's probably part of it. There's also like an underlying um, people are very aware of their social status. That's another consequence of evolving as part of a social group. But we also have social hierarchies. Like everyone wants to be the best. Everyone wants to be like you know, the top of the top of the tree. We want to be the alpha male and all those other cliches. Uh, we, we want to be liked. We want to be respected. Now, I think you contrast that when you see like the Olympics just has finished at the moment, and um, you see someone like run the Olympics or like do something some completely incredible stuff. That's brilliant. It's really impressive, but I think people can understand that. You look at someone who's like a trained gymnast or an excellent sprinter or a weightlifter, you think, yeah, that's really impressive, but I could do that if I just trained all my life like they have. So it's more like, you know, I, well, I could do that, I just I just haven't, I just choose not to, which is obviously not the right. case, but uh, you know, it's, it's, not as, it's understandable. Whereas someone who's more intelligent and more informed than you... There's no way to really, you know, people can't quite grasp that as much. That's seen as more of a threat, perhaps, to someone's status, someone's identity, because they could tell you that you're wrong about something, and that's really... Because I work in psychiatry, and when you tell someone you work in psychiatry, they get very, very suspicious and very sort of standoffish quite quickly a lot of the time. They go, well, don't diagnose me. I wasn't going to, I'm, I'm not on duty, and I'm not actually a psychiatrist. I just work in the field. But people are very <laughs> suspicious and paranoid about it, and because they don't know, like, they they can't anticipate it. Because someone being stronger than you, that's you, know, you can get, you, you can figure that out. Whereas someone being more intelligent is unsettling in that way. Because it's not something you can really, you know, you can you can't you, you couldn't figure out how to come back to that or how to how to compensate for that if you were up to go up against a person. But it's also the fact yeah. that people who are sort of much more informed and more intelligent tend to be far more. You know, they'll tell the truth about what the what the data says. Like scientists, especially, like say, like climate change is happening. People think, well, I don't like that. That's bad for me. So uh, I could agree and sort of try to work my entire life to reverse that trend or try and fix the planet. Or I could just tell them they're lying, and uh, that's you know, it's far more easy for me to. The brain can be quite lazy in that respect. So rather than just trying to take things on board and adapt and change to information. It's far more easy to just go, no, they're wrong, I'm not having with that, and then sort of go about their way. So, yeah, um, there's probably a lot of stuff like that going on, which uh, contributes to this general lack of intellectualism. And also, politics doesn't help either, because when you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible with the least amount of information, people demand intellectual arguments and uh, insightful analysis. That's not very common, whereas people like you know you, you need to have you know something more basic, something more generalist and something more crowd pleasing and It's kind of hard to convey intellectual arguments in that sense, so there's also hmm. been a shift towards sort of sound bites and uh you know, quirky presentations and just more emotive things than anything more substantial in a in, in an information sense, and that's probably you know, developed over time to have a strong streak of uh, lack of anti intellectualism as we say,
0: yeah. Well, that's uh, another um, another fantastic, beautiful segue into the last thing I wanted to, to talk to you about, which was just intelligence itself. There's this is great, George Carlin quote, where he says, um, "Think of how stupid the average person is, and realize half of them are stupider than that." Um, and of course, I, you know, he's talking about uh, the median, but instead of the average. But either way, I just wondering: um, is there any truth to that statement? Dean, is there any truth to that? What does science have to say about this? Um,
1: it's funny you mention that quote actually we, have, uh, we had our education secretary in, the con- in this country a few years back Michael Gove who was in charge of children's education and he said he wants to make sure that all our school children are above average which you know sort of a <laughs> real head grabber Like, oh for goodness sake you're in charge of lives and that's uh, that was really quite um, disheartening for any educator I think it is, anyway, it's a weird thing in that I think uh, when it comes to intelligence it's it's a slippery subject because a lot of scientists sort of disagree on what it actually is I and mean, how would you define it in words. It's got a lot of definitions and I think people have a sort of have a general understanding of it as a sort of, as a thing. We've got to ask someone to sit down and describe it accurately. It's kind of, you probably get lots of different definitions from lots of different people. Mm. It's sort of like seen as the ability to retain and process information at a high rate and effectively and, and so on. So, but then that makes it quite tricky to measure because it's not like weight or like muscle density or strength or anything like that. You can't have some sort of physical some sort of physical element to it. So we have things like uh, IQ tests, which are not actually just – it's not like a scale. As you step on and get a weight, which is sort of completely accurate, it's more reflective of the average population intelligence. So the average intelligence of population according to IQ tests is always 100. No matter where you are, as long as the, the, the sample used was reflected in that population when the test was made, it's at 100. So, like, you say if tomorrow some bizarrely specific virus wiped out everyone in the United States with an IQ of over 100, the IQ the next day would still be 100, it would just be you know, worth less, like a currency being devalued. Mm. And yeah, so yeah, the average person is going to be, you know, have an, the average person does literally have an IQ of 100. It's just that what that average person can do is different from population to population. So yeah, there, there is some truth to that, but it's it's a very slippery scientific subject, especially with neuroscientific in a sense, because it's kind of hard to see intelligence in the brain because it doesn't mm-hmm. come from one particular spot or anything like that. It's uh, it's more of a gestalt, an emergent property of all the different things we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, intelligence is is such an interesting idea in of itself because when we If we, uh, you know, we're we're obviously in an age now where we have a lot of our personal truths, and we 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 question people. We have a lot of tribal behavior. We have a lot of social truths, and um, I often find people thinking, you know, that person's that person's really book smart. You know, that's kind of those are the kind of things you'll hear people say. Uh, They'll recognize people's uh, problem solving abilities, but they want they'll think that all their conclusions are bad. And 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 it is true that you know they're. In in the research into things like conspiracy theories or bias or whatever, that the more the more intelligent a person is, by some measures, the the better they are at conjuring those sorts of concepts and keeping them and, and protecting them. And so, um, what uh, it, it, you talk about in the book, what is the difference between fluid and crystallized intelligence? Well fluid and crystallized intelligence is one
1: way in which some scientists break down intelligence into components or in sort of subtypes. And crystallized intelligence would again, I said earlier on like I don't like it, but I keep using it, the computer analogy to make it as easily understandable as possible. Uh, crystallized intelligence would be like the hard drive. That's where all the information is, all the all the data, all the stuff that you can access and use at any point. So like the more you learn, all the facts you learn uh, this is crystallized intelligence. So, a quiz show would be an example of you know that, that, that test purely. Uh, Assume it's, tr- it's a traditional quiz show, not one of those sort of newfangled ones with all the whistles and bells. Mm-hmm. It uh, it would be an example of crystallized intelligence. Testing crystallized intelligence: the more information you can remember and have access to, suggests that you have more of a, a, a greater crystallized intelligence. Whereas Fluid intelligence would be the ability to use this information and extrapolate and derive conclusions and make connections. And so that would be sort of like the processor on a computer in that it's the bit which uses information. It's got a smaller capacity. It's got sort of like it's not as copious, but it is actually it's more active. It does stuff. And so like something like Sherlock Holmes, when you see him on, on one of his various uh, <laughs> manifestations on in modern media, seem to look at a scene and then make all these connections and links and refer back and work out what's going where that would be crystallized uh, sorry that would be fluid intelligence because he's using information he's using it and processing it and doing things with it and and you know crystallized intelligence would just be the information he has in his head uh, as access to like a language you've learned that's sort of like crystallized intelligence the ability to work out what you know this word means so in a different language that is fluid intelligence and yes yeah, so the, the divide is there and crystallized intelligence doesn't seem to ever stop as you get older but no, no one's lived long enough yet to fill the brain as it were And i mean i don't know how you what you do about that if you did like you can't even go to the doctors and say like my, my brain is full well what do you, 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 you tweet that sorry i'm full it's just completely full
0: so is there any is there any truth to the um to these various brain training um, programs and apps and services that you see all over the uh, all over the place. And um, well, this
1: is a tricky one for me to, to answer. Not because I don't have an answer; it's because these people tend to have money, and people with money tend to have lawyers, and a lot of people might do this. <laughs> so I can't really say oh, oh, completely outright that you what know, well, I do think of these things.
0: But I think from this preamble, well, let me let me, uh, let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. So, <laughs> Um, if I were, were to try to create a, an app that would uh, make people smarter by using it every day, what, what does the science say about um, how well that app would work? It would be
1: very effective at training people to become better and more efficient at the tasks that that app uses. And that seems to be the, one of the, one of the weird sort of consequence of the brain actually being very good. At uh, diversifying and uh, being on specification so something like you know for example people have asked me if I do a lot of crosswords then is that going to make me smarter yes if by smarter you mean better at crosswords because uh, the brain (laughs) can do it's very good at sort of subdivisions and uh, sort of um, being focused in that respect it is quite quite an adaptive organ um, and obviously that sort of skill would have knock-on effects to general word recognition and Similar sort of language, perhaps, development, but there's no one thing we know of yet which will and can boost overall intelligence because intelligence doesn't seem to work that way. Just like if you throw like a number game at your brain, it'll come better and better that number game and still get lost, don't you know, we, in the supermarket if it's not really good at maps and stuff. And, uh, and as a result, it, you know, these, these uh, creations, they they do technically do what they claim to do in that they do boost your brain power, but they boost it in a very, very limited, focused way which doesn't necessarily mm. have much of a wider application for your life in general, unless you are okay. unless you have a real sort of investment in being the best at number games, which some people do, I know, but um, that's not, you know, you don't get a lot of that in the sort of your career support in school. It's not really recommended. And <laughs> it is kind of, uh, you know, it, yeah, it, they do work, but their applications are, not as uh, diverse as perhaps the
0: the marketing mm-hmm. spiel would would have us believe. So don't put uh, your high score on one of those games on your resume. Well, you can if there's nothing else on there. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's not kind of something. But, um, but yes, yeah, so it's probably not. I mean, not. don't put it on the first page anyway. People going to put it under, under interests.
0: Um, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you so much for making this really fun book. No problem at all. Thanks very much for having me. Dean Burnett's book is Idiot Brain, and you can find him over at The Guardian where he blogs under the title Brain Flappings. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can find more great podcasts at boingboingpodcast.com. The show notes are at youarenotsosmart.com. All the previous episodes are on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, youarenotsosmart.com, and uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash so smart is where you can get extra stuff and support the show. You also get the show uh, with no no ads if you go over to Patreon. Find us on Facebook. Big things planned for Facebook, even though they change their algorithm and you don't see us as often as you might have. There are 340,000 plus people on there who are fans of the show. Also find us on Twitter. We are at NotSmartBlog and I am at David McCraney. Send your cookie recipes to David at YouAreNotSoSmart.com.